Angel crazy. <laughs> That's why I did it. <laughs> Not really. All right. Can you guys hear me? I hate this thing. thing in my Just talk face. loud. Tell the joke again. Okay. Here's my obligatory joke. Yeah. <laughs> there was a barber that thought that he should share his faith with his customers more than he had been doing. So the next morning when the sun came up and the barber got, got up out of bed, he said, Today I am going to witness to the first man that walked through my barber shop door. Soon after he opened his shop, the first man came in and said, I want a shave. The barber said, Sure. Just sit in the seat and I'll be with you in a moment. So he goes back into the back room and he prays really quick, one of those arrow prayers. God, the first customer came in and I promised that I was going to witness to him. So give me the wisdom to know just the right thing to say. Amen. Then quickly, he comes out with his razor knife in one hand and a Bible in the other. And he says, good morning, sir. I have a question for you. Are you ready to die? <laughs> Visions of Sweeney Todd. Okay, so maybe it's not just what you say, but the way you say it. Okay, now on to serious stuff. In chapter 6, David transported the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem, making it the center of Israelite worship. David had the entire nation under his control, the government centralized in Jerusalem, and no external enemies. We read in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. <coughs> Various historians believe that David didn't move the ark to Jerusalem until the latter part of his reign. They believe chapters 6 and 7 are located in this part of 2 Samuel more for thematic rather than chronological reasons. So the events in these two chapters actually didn't take place until after David had completed all of his building projects and after his many military campaigns described in chapter 8. This account was placed before the war accounts to show its importance. At any rate, David sends for Nathan and tells him of his desire. David lived in an expensive, beautiful home. The contrast of his home and the tent curtains that held the ark bothered him. He was troubled by the thought that he lived in a nicer home or house than God's holy ark. Jehovah's dwelling was still a temporary structure while his people Israel and their king had received from him a settled land. Without saying the specific words, David told Nathan that he wanted to build a temple to replace the tabernacle. When Israel was in the wilderness, God commanded Moses to build a tent of meeting. God never asked for a permanent home to replace the tent, but David wanted to do this for God. Now that Israel was securely in the land, David thought it appropriate to build a permanent temple to replace 
the mobile tabernacle. Nathan encourages David, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. It seemed good and reasonable, right? What could be wrong with David building a temple? David's heart was so filled with gratitude and concern for God's glory that he wanted to do something special for God. What's not to love about this desire? Right heart attitude? Check. Good for the nation? Check, check. Good for God? Check, check, check. Not so fast, my friend, God said. How about checking with God? <laughs> Verses 4 through 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Obviously, not every word that comes out of a prophet's mouth is inspired. Nathan's response to David was presumptuous. He answered according to human judgment and common sense. Nathan had spoken as a man, but now a divine message comes to him for David, even though Nathan hadn't bothered to ask for one. The way in which God asked the question, would you build a house for me, implies a negative answer, but there is no disapproval of David's purpose. Spurgeon puts it this way, the Lord refused in a most gracious manner. He did not put the idea away from him in anger or disdain, as though David had cherished an unworthy desire. But he honored his servant, even in the non-acceptance of his offer. One commentator suggests that the idea running throughout the divine message is that God's dwelling in a tent depicts Israel's unquiet possession of the land. They had never fully possessed the land they were promised as the Lord had commanded. It was now David's mission to give them tranquility and security in the region. Once David had accomplished this mission, then his son Solomon, whose name means peace and who would rule over a peaceful nation, was to build the temple as the proof that Jehovah had now taken permanent possession of the land. God had rejected David, David's temple building plan but he was planning to do something even greater in David's life than allowing him the prestige of building the temple. He promised to continue the house of David forever. His would be the ruling line over God's chosen people. These promises are known as the Davidic covenant. In verses eight through 16, God presents David with two categories of promises, those that will be realized during David's lifetime and those that will be fulfilled after his death. Verses 8 through 11a. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and had cut off all the enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from, excuse me, from all your enemies. Some scholars don't believe that the provisions of the Davidic covenant described in these verses were fulfilled in David's lifetime. Ladies, the back and forth on these points is mind-boggling. It can cause your eyes to bleed. Anyway, I think at least they at least found initial fulfillment during David's lifetime. David's reputation was established. Israel occupied the land of promise and there weren't any nations in the area that posed a threat to Israel's power. However, this initial fulfillment doesn't mean that these same provisions won't have a more complete future fulfillment. God reminds David that he took him from the pasture to the throne. As a theocratic king, he was the personal representative of God on earth. He was God's servant just as Moses had been and was called to do a great work for God. God protected David every step of the way and made David's name great in all the earth. Although David's accomplishments as king caused his reputation to grow, God was the driving force in making David's name great. He is the one who orchestrated David's transition from being a common shepherd to serving as king over Israel. In addition, God provided a place for his people. The land controlled by Israel during David's reign closely mirrored the boundaries of the land God had promised to Abraham. Under David's reign, God would establish a permanent and secure Israel. God had provided a temporary rest now for David and had done so for his people from the time of the judges who periodically delivered Israel from oppression at the hands of violent men. This rest foreshadows the enduring future rest promised for his people. This brings us to the promises that will be realized after David's death, verses 11b through 16. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised David that he would establish a dynasty for the house of David. This was an enduring legacy for David long after his death. David wanted to build God a temple. God said, no thanks, David. Let me build you a house instead. This was a greater promise that would last longer and be more glorious than any temple David wanted to build. God honored David's sincere intention, even though he prevented him from following through and actually building the temple. First Chronicles 22, 8 through 10, explains why God wouldn't allow David 
to build his temple. David was a man of war, and God wanted a man of peace to build his temple. God told David that a son who would be born to him in the future, named Solomon, would be the one to build his temple. When David learned that God didn't want him to build the temple, he didn't respond by doing nothing. According to 1 Chronicles 29, David gathered all the materials for, for building the temple so that Solomon could build a glorious house for God. God specifically promised a hereditary monarchy for the house of David. This great promise had only a future fulfillment. David would only benefit from the promise through faith, and he had no doubt concerning the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. He declares, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. The seed he speaks of in these verses refers to Solomon, to all the royal descendants of David, and ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Solomon would be the guarantee for the rest of David's descendants and would build the temple. God's mercies never departed from Solomon, though he definitely did sin. The family of David did rule over Israel for, all, for more than 400 years, but was eventually removed because of evil added upon evil. Although the line of David may be disciplined, the terms of this covenant will never be withdrawn. God would one day raise up a loyal son who would satisfy his demands. Yet out of the stump of Jesse, God raised up a new branch that will reign forever and ever. Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2. God's promise of a house for David is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus does reign and will reign on David's throne forever. Verse 18 and following record David's prayer expressing his humble acceptance of God's promise to extend his dynasty forever. David realized that these blessings were given to him and his descendants in order that Israel might benefit from them. They would help fulfill God's greater purpose and promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through the nation, the whole earth would be blessed. Verses 18 through 24. The, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from, is, from Egypt, the nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. When David received this spectacular gift, 
He didn't think it made him any greater. In David's eyes, it made God greater. His words are full of thanksgiving and of wonder at the greatness of God's mercies to him. He acknowledges his own unworthiness compared with the high honor which God is bestowing on him. His humble acceptance of this gift is shown by repeating that he is God's servant ten times in his prayer. David makes no mention of the Messiah as he prays, yet we know from the Psalms he wrote that he did connect the span of his dynasty with the coming of the Savior. David understands that God knows his heart and that the only reason why God is doing this is because God has chosen to declare his will. It makes God's own good will and pleasure the cause of great honors bestowed on David, not because David in any way deserves it. In the same way, Israel's uniqueness had nothing to do with her achievements as a nation, but in God's choice of her to be his people. The basis of God's electing love has nothing to do with any characteristic of any people but in his own sovereign purposes. David recognizes the spiritual importance of both the dynasty given to him and the fact that Israel is to be a people forever and Jehovah has become their God. Israel will have an everlasting existence. Was what God has pledged to David, he has pledged as the God of Israel. Verses 25 through 29. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David's prayer boldly asked God to do what he had promised. You are God and your words are true. This was David's foundation of faith. He knew that God was God and that every word of his was true. He knew that God could be trusted. In chapter 8, we have a brief summary of the wars which brought Israel from a struggling and oppressed nation to the possession of a widespread empire. David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. The Philistines had troubled Israel for centuries, and they often dominated the people of God. In the reign of David, he both attacked and subdued these enemies. David took Metheg Amog, and in 1 Chronicles 18.1, we learn that this was the city of Gath. Gath was the metropolis of Philistia, and had reduced the other four chief towns of the Philistines to a state of bondage. Thus, by taking Gath, David acquired the supremacy that this city had previously exercised over the whole country. And by placing, placing a strong garrison there, he kept them in control. When David became king, the Philistines were taking territory from God's people. Under his leadership, God's people began to take territory from their enemies. 
Then he defeated Moab, descendants of Lot, who lived east of the Dead Sea. David's great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabite, and he had once been on such friendly terms with Moab that he entrusted his father and mother into the king's keeping. Now he not only subjugates them, but puts two-thirds of the captured combatants to death. The Jewish Midrash, which contains early rabbinical interpretations and commentaries on specific passages in the Hebrew scripture, justifies this treatment of the Moabites in the supposed fact that the king of Moab had put David's parents to death. Those who were spared David became David's servants and brought him an annual tribute. David next conquers Assyrian alliance. Zobah lay northeast of Damascus and south of Hamath in the region between the rivers Orontes and Euphrates. It had once been a perilous country governed by a multitude of petty kings, but now Hadadezer had become a powerful monarch whose authority extended even across the river into Mesopotamia. Having crushed his rivals at home, he now endeavors to extend his dominion abroad and marched out to strengthen his control along the Euphrates River. I think it's fair to say that things didn't go his way. David destroyed his forces, captured a thousand chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. Now some of your virgins might have different numbers. Let's just say he won handily, no matter what the numbers were. He took the golden shields of Hadadezer's officers to Jerusalem, along with a large amount of bronze from two Syrian cities, Beta and Barathai. First Chronicles 18.8 adds that it was from the brass that Solomon, from this brass that David um, got, that Solomon made the great labor, the pillars, and many other vessels for the temple service. David hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. This was a military necessity instead of mere animal cruelty. David couldn't care for so many horses while on a military campaign, and he certainly couldn't give them back to the enemy to be used again. Commentators believe that the hundred horses he spared would be useful to him for rapid communication and were not a violation of the command in Deuteronomy 1716 forbidding the king from acquiring many horses. That David kept such a small number of horses shows remarkable trust in God. He absolutely refused to trust in horses as military weapons. The Syrians or Arameans of Damascus were descended from Aram, the son of Shem, one of Noah's sons, and they bore his name. As members of a kindred race and speaking the same language, all the clans of the Arameans would naturally combine to try and stop Israel's growing power. When they arrived to help Hadadezer, David killed 22,000 of them and placed several army garrisons in their capital of Damascus. The Arameans became David's subject and brought him tribute money. The fact that David, using only infantry, defeated an army provided with so powerful a force of cavalry and chariots is proof that he triumphed by God's aid. Hadadezer's defeat fulfilled God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18, that Israel would control the land as far north 
as the Euphrates River. Another people group who fought with Israel during the same military campaign were the Edomites. They were descendants of Esau and arch enemies of Israel. Believing that David was engaged in a struggle beyond his powers with the Syrians, they took the opportunity to invade Israel. But the campaign in Aram was quickly decided and David was, sent, was able to send Abishai with a detachment of his forces to repel the Edomites. On hearing of his, of his approach, the Edomites retreated and making a stand on their own territories were defeated in the Valley of Salt, losing 18,000 men. The country was held by strong garrisons and the Edomites became David's servants. Well, ladies, now the news was spreading. Israel was becoming a force to be reckoned with. Neighboring nations um, saw that God's hand was on David and brought him honor and gifts. One of these was Toy, king of Hamath, who sent his son Joram with congratul congratulations and rich presents for David. Hamath was a city on the river Orontes situated on the northernmost boundary of Palestine. It was the capital of the Hittites, another enemy of Israel. The Assyrians and the Hittites had been fighting each other for 400 years. These people put the Hatfields and the McCoys to shame. <laughs> Needless to say, Toy was grateful that David had subdued his arch enemy. When David received the gifts of silver, gold, and bronze, he dedicated it all to the Lord. He knew that the praise and glory belonged to God. In Psalm 18, 43 through 44, David has expresses his, his thoughts about these tributes. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. God used David to lead Israel to victory over enemies in every direction. Israel possessed more land, more of the land God had promised under David's reign than at any other time. He established Israel's supremacy over the extensive region from Hamath on the north to the salt plains on the south of the Dead Sea and from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Every victory and any enemy subdued was a testimony to the Lord's preserving power in the life and reign of David. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. He consolidated the tribes and provided tribunals for the settlement of disputed legal rights and the punishment of crimes. David made the tribes of Israel into a united nation. The anarchy and disintegration that existed during the time of the judges and continued somewhat into Saul's reign was a thing of the past. No great ruler succeeds by himself. This list of David's chief officers belongs to the period of his greatest prosperity. Between this list and the second list recorded in 2 Samuel 20 lies a tragic tale of sin and shame that will unfold as we continue to study 2 Samuel. 
We are told that Joab was the commander of the army. Jehoshaphat was recorder. This word literally means remembrancer. This is a person who would write down the king's decrees. And after they were approved by the king, um, either by his hand or a seal, they were entered into the book of remembrance of the kings. Zadok and Ahimelech were the priests. Zadok at Gibeon and Ahimelech at Jerusalem. Sariah was scribe. This would be similar to our Secretary of State. The Cherethites and the Pelethites are thought to have been a group of elite mercenaries employed by David, some as his bodyguards and others as part of his, of his army. Historians believe that these were minor Philistine tribes that lived in the region of Ziklag, where David came in contact with them. Finally, David's sons were priests, not Levitical priests, rather ministers and confidants of the king. I'd like to highlight a couple of things we can learn from David in these two chapters. First, David longed to build a temple for the Lord, but God said no. Sometimes we have to yield our greatest desires to the will of Almighty God and be prepared to hear him deny our request. Not everything we think is a good thing goes along with God's purpose and plan. Are you willing to give up your cherished dreams as David did, trusting that God's way is the best way? David needed a power outside of himself, and he wasn't too proud to admit it. Psalm 42.2, my soul thirsts for the living God. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? He had faults and troubles and limitations, but one of the beautiful things about David's life is that he wasn't too proud or, or too, yeah, too proud to hold out his hand for help. He knew where his help came from, the Lord God Almighty. Finally, David wasn't just a passionate man. He was a man that was passionate about the right things. God saw what was in David's heart. He saw a man who was more concerned with God's truth than his own. Do you think that because you believe something passionately that it must be true? Is there room in your thinking to humbly accept a different thought process than your own? Do you ever think that you just might be wrong? Not possible. <laughs> Justice should characterize the way each of us relates to people. We need to make sure we are generous and courteous in the way that we treat others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this study of the life of David. Help us to follow his humble example of trust and obedience to your will. Lord, as many of us struggle with unfulfilled desires, whatever they may be, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be willing to believe that your word is true and that your ways are perfect. And Lord, as we strive to follow you and your path for our lives, help us to remember to seek your help and to believe as David did that you are the strength of our life. 
Lord, just as David's reign was characterized by humility and doing what was fair and just to all, I pray that you would help us to act in a way towards, in a just way towards others. Help us to exhibit self-control. Help us to be courteous and generous in our dealings with others. In the name of your precious Son, we pray. Amen. Amen.